Welcome, I'm Ross Young and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show. Hello again, this is G. Mark Hardy. I'm here with Ross Young on our CISO Tradecraft podcast. Welcome back for what we hope will be another useful and informative episode. Today, we're gonna talk about DevOps. And of course, the first question you might come up with is that you say, well, why should I listen to DevOps as a CISO? Isn't that somebody else's job? Well, our assertion is you need to, and here's why. If you have development teams in your organization, they're writing code, they're writing things for sale or even for internal use, there are going to be security issues potentially in terms of that whole software cycle, which we'll talk about in a moment. As a CISO then, what you should be able to do is know about that process and how you can add some value to it. Secondly, we need to be conversant with our peers. If we are talking with other CISOs or people who want to become a chief information security officer and the subject of DevOps or DevSecOps comes up and you don't know much about it, you're not going to be able to track and that's going to be potentially a bit embarrassing. So, so that also is a good reason just to fill in your knowledge base. And then lastly, it's about thought leadership. You want to be able to be viewed as a leader in your organization and to your peers and you do so by gaining knowledge and understanding of topics that are important. So for being a CISO and looking at DevOps, it's going to be about protecting our brand, protecting the brand of our organization for the products or the services or the, you know, the software services we create such that it's done in a secure way. If you have a security breach of your code or something like that, that reflects on you. So I mentioned that DevOps is going to be for developers. That's where the dev comes from. But, but what do we mean by software development? I used to work as a software developer many years ago, and I worked for both a larger firm, Booz Allen Hamilton, and then a smaller company when there was only about, I think, nine people there. We had a much different approach with the larger formal approach where we had a government client when I was at Booz Allen, and we did the little startup. And so a traditional approach of being able to do software development in a structured manner uses what we call a software development lifecycle, where you go through five different phases. You do requirements. What does the customer need? Then we go to design. We figure out what needs to be put into the code. Then we actually do the coding itself. Then we test it, make sure it's worked. And finally, we flip it over to production. Well, when I was at Booz, we had this big, large, honking government contract, and the specifications were like a book. And so as a result, we used a traditional methodology called waterfall. And with waterfall, it's the approach that you would use when the requirements probably aren't going to change. And so as a result, you'd take the requirements from the customer, and then you'd go up to Santa's workshop, and you'd work on them for a few months, and you'd come back and say, ta-da! Here's the code. And they may look at it and say, um, well, you kind of did what we said, but not what we meant. Could you kind of correct that? 
So off to Santa's workshop you go for a couple more months, come back, ta-da! Well, it's not kind of really there. And but a lot of wasted work, a lot of wasted redo. And so the agile approach of being able to create an iterative approach, cycling back with the customer uh, every couple weeks perhaps, uh, and we have whole teams, scrums, and the whole Agile has its own language. But fundamentally, what Agile does is we get out of this waterfall, which is work, 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 work on the requirements phase and over the edge of the waterfall down to the design phase, design, 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 then over the edge of the waterfall into coding and so on, to Agile where we're looping around. And as a result, we don't get that far off of course. We make a little mistake. We misinterpret the client requirements. We can fix it within a couple of weeks. Well, why is that not enough today? What is it that's driving us toward more innovation in terms of doing things with regard to development? And that brings us to the topic of DevOps. So Ross, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a great lead in, G-Mark. I really appreciate it. I think we need to look at software and look at the core basics of requirements. Do you understand what you're building or is this something that you don't really know what it is until after you build it? And if it's the first thing, like we're going to build a house, it's, it's pretty well understood. We do the same thing over and over and you can build that out and waterfall may be a solution to that. But a lot of times we don't know what we're building. The customer gives us pretty bad requirements and we're guessing what they want. And so in this case, if you have to do large amounts of time for building requirements, desired coding, just to figure out you built the wrong thing, it's a terrible methodology. And so you see things like Agile coming up in the space where we say, let's have the ability to change the requirements frequently. Let's have small iterations. Another big problem that we also noticed happening is this, this friction that happens between developers and operations teams. And they have very divergent goals. Developers are promoted by adding new features, adding new functionality to tools and systems. Operations teams are promoted by service level agreements and keeping things always running. And how do you keep things always running? Well, you don't allow change. Because if nothing changes and it's already working, well, I can just sit back and lay on my, my hindquarters if I'm an operator, right? So how does that work? Well, what you see is that friction has really changed the organizations and people said, well, we got to do better. And so ops teams complained that when changes happened, they couldn't really fix them. So they just revert back. And developer teams were complaining that they needed more features. So you needed a hybrid team of both a developer and an operator to sit together to then manage that application. And when this happens, it really solves a core problem, which is when things break late at night, how does the developer have the ability to fix it? Because the operator probably doesn't understand the code that was written to actually fix it. He can just revert back to an earlier release. So when we have this, it allows velocity of the developer to fix things. And when the developer gets those 2 a.m. calls or the weekend calls that the system is not working, when you have lots and lots of customers buying things, well, he's going to be incentivized to change. He's going to say, I don't want to work on a Saturday. Screw that. I need to make sure this thing works like a champ. And he's going to put a lot more functional testing in there 
to really make that happen. So these sorts of things really help change our process. And, and it, it's all about how do we make things go faster? How do we do smaller releases? And if we do smaller releases, we're really doing less risk. And just think about this. If you only released code once a year, think of how much functionality your teams would want crammed into that code. And think how much functionality has opportunities to go wrong. But if you release code every day and you had 365 opportunities to make changes, well, now it's so much smaller. If something goes wrong, you got tomorrow to fix it. You can roll back. It's a small change, a lot less risk. So those are some of the big drivers for DevOps that we're seeing. Interesting. So essentially what we're doing is we're moving away, or this is an opportunity to move away from the big changes like Microsoft Super Patch Tuesday, which comes out as a second Tuesday is every month. And of course, we all know the day afterwards is called Exploit Wednesday because all the different fixes that are out there. And I've had at least three Microsoft patches go bad on me in the last year and a half. And not just me, but I guess a lot of other people. In spite of the excellence that Microsoft has in terms of their inspection and things like that, when you release changes to hundreds of thousands of lines of code at once, it introduces all these possibilities of things that could go wrong. But what I hear you saying is, if I just need to change happy to glad, if I need to make a little minor change in one particular performance area, now I don't have to go through this entire complex review cycle that could take weeks and months uh, we're allowed to just go ahead and move it out a lot faster, which is kind of interesting because years ago, I, I took a summer job at a bank. I did my undergraduate at Northwestern and got hired for a bank uh, to do some well, software development. And it was interesting because when I came to that bank, they did fingerprints, they did um, handwriting samples. Now this is the 70s, so I guess they, that's what the, it was a standard. And I remember asking somebody, he's like, why? This is ridiculous. I'm a summer guy. I don't have access to any money. I'm not working as a teller. And she explained to me, he said a couple of years ago, one of the programmers had written something where he was able to siphon off one million zero thousand zero dollars and zero cents. Exactly a million. Well, the fact of losing a million dollars seemed like kind of a um, unlikely computer error. And so they just thought it was an accounting error. And the guy did eventually put in his letter, said, I'm leaving. They had a going away party for him, sold his house. And it wasn't until a few months later, they realized he really had made off with exactly one million zero thousand zero dollars And so what was the rule? The rule was essentially developers may never write to production because you could do this fraud. Well, guess what DevOps is? Developers write to production. So it goes completely against the culture of these longstanding organizations. And yet we see that the advantages may outweigh significantly the disadvantages. So if we assume for a moment that we'll suspend disbelief, that we'll say it's okay for developers to write to production, what is DevOps? Uh, what do we need to know about it? And, and how does it give us the assurance uh, that our developers aren't gonna go ahead and head off to their own island within a few months? So. Interesting story. When you think of DevOps, it's really a couple of things. It's combining software development practices with IT operations. And that really has to focus on a couple of, of key pieces. It's philosophies of, of people, it's practices and processes, 
and it's also the tools that that folks are using. And as we put those together, I, I think it's it's still important to call out. We don't have to have one developer release everything to prod. We can still have code reviews by a second developer. But what we don't want is long drawn out boards, processes and things that prevent a developer from releasing code quickly. That ability to have the velocity of code, uh, the rapid release provides a lot of functional values for organizations. So DevOps isn't a simple term. I think if you go to 20 different practitioners and say, what is DevOps? Every single person will have a slightly different take on it. But there's a couple of key things that will come into, and you typically hear an acronym called CALMS. Gmark, would you like to talk a little bit about it? Well, certainly. Of course, you're the expert in the DevOps, which is why I'm doing the interviewing here. But uh, comms consists of, of a number of different elements. Uh, first of all, the C kind of talks about the culture. Uh, it's a little bit different way of doing business. So instead of, if you will, writing code and then throwing it over the cubicle wall to somebody else to test and throwing it over the wall for someone else to go ahead and put it into production, we tend to own things a little bit differently. We're more focused on how do we empower our people to do stuff. And so we trust the process is going to work but we also are gonna do a lot more trust with our people. Now, that said, there is a lot of protection in there, the automation. The automation that's in there creates, if you will, like a conveyor belt, one where code that's introduced doesn't just get written directly to production. That's absolutely not what DevOps is, but rather DevOps is gonna be more about that infrastructure that's created to ensure that code is tested, verified, validated, as you go through being able to look at that code snippet, integrating with its other portions, putting it into the whole program, testing it, rolling it out and getting it into production and even validating that afterwards. Uh, the idea of, of lean, uh, lean engineering practice and things such as that, suggesting what? We're always trying to get a little bit better. We're not just gonna stick with a project and keep going. Uh, C-A-L-M, measurement. Measurement, what are we doing? We have to be collecting all kinds of metrics because if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And if you can't manage it, you're not going to be able to improve it. And so as a result, we've instrumented this whole process. And lastly, the idea of sharing. So I remember that I worked in organizations where you had information that you thought was ours, our team, our group, et cetera. And as a result, we created these little silos, as we called them, where you wouldn't share it with somebody else in some other part of the organization because you somehow might lose some perceived advantage or you say, hey, they're only gonna promote one senior developer this year and I want it to be me, so I'm not gonna help any of the other developers. Instead, it kind of comes back to that culture difference about sharing ideas, sharing ideas, and even having the security team, the development team, the operations team, imagine this, working together for a common goal to making sure things come out okay. Yeah. So let me give you the history of where this really started coming to be. If you were a developer in the early 2000s or a system administrator, what, what did that look like? You probably would have wrote some code or a script, and then you would have deployed that out to a server. And if I'm a system administrator, you know, and I only have one server, that's pretty easy. I can remotely log into that machine. I can copy paste a file to come over or upload it, and then I can execute it and update software in a very manual way. Now, 
what happens is, you know, I just keep going and I update and update and update the software. But by about the fourth or fifth change, if, if something happens and I need to roll back, that that's, gets really difficult to do. Now, you take that that difficulty and you compound that with, I don't just manage one machine. I manage 100 machines. Well, that kind of sucks. I got to log into 100 different machines and, and upload code and run scripts. And, oh, I took a, a coffee break here and a lunch break there. What number am I on? I, I left, you know, that's, that's a pain. We don't want to do that. So you started seeing a lot of tools come out like Chef and Puppet and what they allowed assisted administrators to do is have the ability to create infrastructure as code. And what that means is all of these things that you want to implement become software. And then how do I have ways where I can make sure everything looks the same and auto deploy my software? And this ability of creating infrastructure of code and starting the automation pieces is really what changed our environment and allows one person to manage thousands of machines and become very, very fast. It promotes the concepts of, of lean, of wasting time, of logging into 100 machines and maximizing the efficiency of just one developer or system administrator. And, and, and that's where DevOps really starts to take place. Now, that's, that's an approach from more of a system administrator point of view. But we're seeing the same sorts of things with automation and infrastructure as code on the developer side, right? How do I standardize what I want my entire operating system to look like, my middleware environments and all of the application libraries? How do I standardize how that I can build an application so I can just hit play and my runbook actually kicks off every praxis that needs to happen? Now, when you do this, couple of things really start to emerge. One, we get standardized tools and patterns. Two, we start to see very stable and reliable builds come out. We also see teams really build common frameworks in, in collaboration when they start doing the same things over and over. And guess what? Your software builds don't have any, as many errors. They just release faster with better quality. And Audit loves this. Right. If you can go to an organization and say, how do you consistently deploy applications to make sure they're not misconfigured? And you go back and you say, well, we made sure this operating system was evaluated one time according to our security policies and, and, and guidance. And here's what it looks like. We've deployed this. We can check different types of hashes to ensure it's exactly what it should be. And if anything changes, we have things that auto revert it back that's pretty good for, for an audit review. So there's a lot of great practices and benefits that we see from some of these DevOps principles. You mentioned audit, and I'd had a chance at one point in my career to work at Ernst & Young and got my CISA, Certified Information Systems Auditor uh, ticket, which I've, I actually I went back and I took a look at that. I did that in September of 2001. So how's that for kind of a, uh, a risky start to something new? In any case, one of the issues you mentioned, make the auditors happier because you're in a situation where you can say, hey, this is all protected, et cetera. But the other thing I found out working for like an external audit firm like EY is that we'll bring in a lot of smart, but fairly young and experienced people as they're learning the ropes. And what if they've never seen a DevOps before? What if they come into an environment and they go, oh my goodness, developers are writing to production. They're um, 
there's there's no adult controls in here. This thing it's it's run amok. It's uh, it's crazy. Um, how do you how do you calm those people down a little bit and say no no no? This actually does make good sense. Uh, we've got these controls in place. Uh, what's the what's the because this is really a real issue here potentially uh, for any CISO is if you're dealing with auditors, you have of course a different approach from internal auditors and external auditors. Internal auditors tend to know the organization better, and quite honestly, they'll sink or swim with the company. All right, external auditors, you know, worst they can do is lose a client. Um, but uh, when it comes to DevOps, have you encountered any issues with auditors with respect to them looking at it askance and saying, I've never seen it this way before and this looks scary or am I just making this concern up? The biggest challenge I see is having two people on the dev team being able to release code to prod. There's a little bit of a fight still over that particular topic. And what you have to do is show that, yes, we have two people to prevent you know, just one person from releasing really bad and having a challenge and review. But what we're doing is we're automating all of our operational tests through a process that has been bought off by the organization. And, and let's, let's talk about that a little bit more. I could write a thousand different security policies and make those required across the organization. At the end of the day, it doesn't mean the developers are going to follow it. They may never even read those policies. So how do I get a better security state? Well, I need to change the production release of code. And the way I do that is by building a pipeline that has my security policies as gate checks. So for example, let's say we don't want any software going to production that has a critical vulnerability where there's remote code exploitation. That is just not going to end well on internet facing sites. So if I have something that says, let's check the code to make sure there's no critical vulnerabilities, and then you get a thumbs up or a thumb down and you can release to prod, well, now I don't really need that second person to do the operational check. I built a process that works 24-7 on the weekends at 2 a.m. to make sure that code is ready to go out into production. And so I think that's how we have to change the minds of auditors of using processes to improve our delivery practices much better than we would ever have with a one-person code review that doesn't scale, that's not fast enough. Yeah, so you brought up a very good point that as auditors, we audit against policy. And if your policy says everybody has to wear a silly purple hat, well, then that's a finding if people aren't wearing silly purple hats. But also the point about you might have all of this policy written and people haven't read it, they're not following it. If you have a system, though, that is automated, you take a lot of that human error variable out of the situation, don't you? Uh, you're at a point where if you build the system correctly, then uh, you end up with perhaps a better outcome, which really tends to lower your risk in the long run, doesn't it? Exactly. So what we see is these DevOps best practices promote automated testing, promote automation and application monitoring. It promotes uh, sharing and standardization of technologies and version control. And all of these things is really at the heart of good security. If we know what things are and they're simple to understand and they're repeatable, that allows for a more secure end state. And, and as we do this, this is a place where we can agree on to get to a better place. 
Got it. Now, one of the terms I hear when it comes to DevOps is CI/CD, uh, continuous integration, uh, continuous delivery. What, what are we really talking about when they talk about this CI/CD? What does that mean, and what does it mean to us as a security practitioner? So, when we go back to the the functional states of releasing code, we have what are things are being built in a developer environment. Typically, that's the developer's laptop. Afterwards, the developer has an application. They're going to test all of the unique code that they built themselves to make sure it works. And then you have to test what one developer's pieces are with the second developers, and that's called integration tests. And finally, you get to a state where you do an acceptance test, and then final, and then everything can be released into production. So as we think about those different states, Continuous integration is about how do we automate the deployment of what a developer releases for his or her code into an integration test. That ability to deploy that faster, to do all the functional application tests and integration tests is what CIE is really about. Now, the continuous delivery or CD is about taking it to the delivery stage which means more of the acceptance tests. It's not just it's built, it's working, it's passed all those reviews, and now it needs to go to the approvers to say, okay, we can release during this window. Just because you have code that is perfect and ready to go doesn't mean you want to deploy it on Black Friday when you're Best Buy, right? (laughs) You may have change windows, of certain times that are not at the end of the month where you're going to really screw up the auditors and end of the month reporting. So you may have windows and that's where having those acceptance tests come in. And then finally, the continuous deployment is about the automation into production. I hit one play button and everything just goes, right? I don't need anybody manually logging into boxes, installing, uploading things. It's the easy button, right? You hit it and everything just deploys because everything has already gone through all the tests and the approvals and everybody is on board to releasing things. Okay, so what I hear you saying is kind of three important concepts here. The concept of continuous integration or CI, where a developer writes some codes, we test that application, make sure it's working right, and then we integrate it with the rest of the code base. All right, and so that integration, of course, it has to take, so to speak. You don't want to have somebody introducing or short-circuiting some other part of the code. So that's our continuous integration. We could go one step beyond that with a continuous delivery and have that conveyor belt, if you will, now progress automatically to these acceptance tests, where you're going to go through and make sure that all these different conditions are met, et cetera, and it's ready to go. And typically at that point, there'd be like a little blinking light saying, ready to fire, ready to, you know, ready to go, ready to deploy, ready to deploy. But in continuous deployment, that conveyor belt goes all the way to the end and it dumps off the product, if you will, the update right into production. So the continuous deployment then, as you said, is sort of the easy button, which lets you go all the way through. So back to the auditor question and things such as that. In a continuous delivery model, you could point to an auditor, an external one who may be not that familiar with DevOps and said, but look, we do all these automated testing. Here are logs. You can review the logs. Here's the results of things. And oh, by the way, there's a human in the loop before this thing actually goes out to production. So as you said, it doesn't fly out the door on Black Friday or the last day of the quarter when everybody's trying to close the deal. 
as compared to maybe a continuous deployment, which to me sounds like the most mature state where uh, we've got this thing really worked out. We've got it to the point where I can put an update or a change into this conveyor belt is the term I'm using, and it eventually works its way all the way out the door. Um, I'm guessing that that's what's done with my cell phone apps because I turned off my auto updates four days ago and I check on my uh, Google Play Store and I have 17 apps that need to be updated. Now, I can't imagine that I had seven, and I'm not an app guy, okay? I don't have that many things on there, um, but I can't imagine 17 pieces of code all requiring major, major upgrades coincidentally in the last 96 hours. But if I understand the concept of DevOps, it doesn't have to be a major update. Somebody might have spotted a little mistake. They realize, hey, this is the wrong shape. It didn't render correctly on this size screen. They put a little fix in there, send it down the conveyor belt, and boom, it pops up in the app store. So is that what's really going on there? Yeah. What we're doing is building a process that auditors love. And to do this, there's a couple things you have to have. A consistent way of deploying software. It needs to be adequate in the safeguards and security testing. And it needs to also have reasonable expectations of this is going to produce exactly what things are expected to come out of. And if you do those things and make sure they're effective and timely, that, that also really lures everything in. So to have those things, you have to have a couple basic building blocks. You need to have a source code repository like GitHub or GitLab where developers upload the code and we can see what changes are being made. We can see there's code reviews and approvals before this becomes merged into the master branch of code that is going to be ultimately deployed. Next, you see something called the continuous integration or continuous deployment tools. This is something like Jenkins. And what it, Jenkins does is it allows you to take your infrastructure as code and say, Build it this way. Step one, I want you to take this code and compile it this way. Step two, upload it to this server over here. Step three, make these changes this way. Step four, do these tests over here. Step five, make sure everything is just smooth and running. And as you do those things, this is really where the automation comes from, from a CI/CD tool like Jenkins. Additionally, you're going to see another tool, like a testing tool. And this may be implemented inside of Jenkins, but this needs to identify that whatever changes you deployed work. Because if it doesn't work, you need to fail fast. So mm -hmm. you'll see tools like Selenium Grid, Cucumber, Helium that can be used to identify this service functionality works on a website. It, you create a, a mock user that goes into a website, clicks all these things, and we would expect all these outputs. And if it does, now you know your website's still working. But if you go to the site and it, you get a 404 error, which just says, you know, not found and, and not working, well, something's not working and you can't push that release. And your functional test would tell you that. We're also seeing... Uh, Docker really start to come out, whether you're using Kubernetes and containers, it's, it's about taking all of your software packages and putting them into a portable package where you can move it to any environment. Maybe you're in the cloud, maybe you're on-prem, maybe you're in a hybrid of, of both of those things. Having the ability 
to move these things so it works the same on the developer laptop as it does in the test server, as it does in the QA server, that makes a lot of value so that we don't have, well, it worked in prod, but it doesn't work, you know, or didn't work in prod and it did work over here. Those challenges go away. Yeah, and that's that's a good point. And maybe we'll talk more about containers in some other broadcast. I found that very fascinating. You know, quick aside, two years ago, I built uh, using Docker an application for a client. It was basically a permission blockchain for identity management. And I chose Docker because we were going to try to deploy this on all these different platforms. So what a great way to do so is compared to, you know, writing it for one environment and doesn't work someplace else. So containers, container management, really important. But if you're not using containers yet, We'll tell you more about that probably in a future broadcast, but sorry to interrupt, but I just want to point out the importance that this is something that can be really a game changer for us in terms of making sure stuff runs correctly everywhere if we're going to use that, but it may or may not be part of your DevOps pipeline. Um, but then lastly, uh, you had a little bit more about there, like what happens when we go up to the cloud? What do we need there? Yeah, that brings up another piece. If we think back to this, this important concept of, everything becoming code, infrastructure is code. Cloud is just another form of infrastructure. So we'll use things like Terraform or AWS cloud formation scripts to say, here's how I want the firewalls to, to work. Here's how I want encryption on my EC2 servers. Here's how I want my load balancers and things to be deployed and show this connectivity. And, and these types of provisioning tools are just another form of a DevOps tool that you would provide your developers in your organization. Right. And so then each, each environment, like Amazon has their cloud, AWS cloud formation. I think Google calls it their cloud deployment manager is your resource manager. I think you'd mentioned uh, Terraform, that's by HashiCorp. That's actually, if you're gonna be in multiple cloud environments, it's actually a pretty useful tool. Okay, so great. So we've got all these tool sets. We've got this conveyor belt. We've got a different way of operating. We're hopefully going to make the auditors happy. Uh, where does security fit into DevOps? How do we become sec DevOps or DevSecOps or however we want to permute that term? Where do we actually fit in? Yeah, so the term DevSecOps, some people love it, some people hate it. I think it's a good term. For me, what that means is how do we take our security policies, which nobody reads and is difficult to enforce and turn it into something that can be automatic, right? It's automatic and it magically applies security checks and policies to promote something better. And what we see is when we build these security tools in, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? If we prevent all this bad stuff from entering our environment, well, we don't have to do all the incident response when things break, when things go bad and we got hackers in our environment, we're looking through logs and all that stuff just goes away. Fix it up front. So security kind of has a variety of tools that'll help. The easiest one and the one I recommend everyone start with if you're going to do a pipeline is what is known as a software composition analysis tool. Now, these are things like SNYK, S-N-Y-K, Black Duck, or Sonatype. And what these tools do is they look for the libraries and software that's installed in your code. And it can also be in a container. Those sorts of things allow you to understand 
when you're going to put software out that has vulnerabilities, think of it this way. You have a build list of materials that says I'm using X version of software. And then it's going to look at that and compare it to MITRE and say, well, X version of software is known to have a critical vulnerability X to, you know, and it'll list off some number. And so you can use those very quickly and very accurately to say, does this pass the sniff test before I push code through? And it has a very, very high positive rate. So you're not getting a lot of errors or things that are not true findings, if you will. So that's where I really recommend organizations start with. And that's now, done on the non-running code, correct? You're actually yes. Looking, right. Yes. You can, you can look at source code to find vulnerabilities before even having to put it on a server. So this is, mm -hmm. is one of the earliest steps you can do in, in your quality checks. Right. Now, the one piece I will say that is problematic about software composition analysis is there's this problem of nested dependencies, which is I may be using a version of software. Let's just think of it as uh, MySQL. But if MySQL has 10 dependencies of its own, well, the only thing I could do is run the latest version of MySQL. And if MySQL isn't running the latest version of its libraries, well, I'm, I'm kind of stuck there. So that's, that's probably the one thing you have to think about, and there's not a great solution to that. Now, if we come back and start to think of the other types of tools besides software composition analysis, the, the main one that you're going to see early on is a static application security testing tool such as Checkmarks or Fortify. And these SaaS tools, if you will, are known for having some of the largest amounts of false positives. And it's because they have the hardest job of any security tool. They have to look at software code, which is in, I don't know, 30 different languages in your environment, maybe. And they have to look from a billion different ways that people can write code to identify attacks and vulnerabilities. You're putting passwords into your code. You're not checking your function calls in for the input to make sure it's sanitized. You're not checking to make sure that people can't break out of the memory that you're giving them. All of these sorts of things are very, very hard to do, but they're the one type of tool you can use on so many different languages. So it's very, very valuable to use. And as we move to things that are in the cloud and functions and serverless, it's one of the only things you can do to secure your code. Now, let's, let's change the scenario on our third type of application security tools, which are dynamic application security testing tools, commonly known as DAST scanners. Those are examples would be something like a web inspect or Veracode dynamic analysis. And this approaches the problem very differently. They think of things of here's a website. Well, on a website, you're going to have forms. You're going to have fields where people can input data into these boxes, right? And buttons you can click. And so what they allow you to do is say, what if I were to put in a number? What happens? What if I were to put in a symbol? Does that do anything different? What if I were to put in a 10,000 character string into a box that you're only expecting 10 characters to come in? How does your code treat that? Can I escape out of things to cause certain uh, defects to occur and compromise your code? Can I spider through your website to find 
all these pages that are in your web server. And did you know you left your admin page exposed? Well, now I can just start trying usernames and passwords. And if you left those things with defaults, bad things can happen. So they're looking for some of these configurations that are default and insecure. They're looking for things where you're not sanitizing your inputs. And the problem with these types of scanners is they're really, really slow, right? So the problem is developers want to release code fast. And if your DAS scanner takes a week to run, they can't release their code every day. They got to wait a week to release their code. So you need to kind of scope that to do as much as you can. We also talked about the infrastructure piece of using CloudFormation scripts and Terraform scripts to make sure, making sure your cloud services are, are well provisioned. We're seeing a lot of infrastructure checking tools coming in, things like Prisma, Checkoff, uh, CloudFormation NAC. And what these tools do is they analyze your scripts to against the CIS benchmarks to say, Amazon doesn't want your files to be insecure. So if you don't have logging turned on, you don't have encryption turned on, you don't have all of the security controls that we would expect in a well-architected Amazon system, well, we're gonna alert you on it. And it may be okay, right? If you have a public website that you're hosting out of an S3 bucket, that's expected. If you have your private salary data hosted on a public S3 bucket, that's probably not okay. So these sorts of things are the fourth type of check I typically see in DevOps pipelines when we implement a DevSecOps mindset. Okay, so to summarize then, the SCA, the software composition analysis, checking your libraries, make sure you're using the most current libraries. And of course, there's kind of that nested dependency, I'm using this, which is using that, using that, and you can't really run them to ground. The SAS or static application security testing, typically done in the development phase of my software development lifecycle, where I'm actually just taking the code that's fixed, running it against the, for choice or lack of a better term, spell checkers, and then making sure that that works out okay. But then the concern there potentially is false positives, so you got to weed through all that extra noise, so to speak. Um, in the testing phase, we're going to do the dynamic application security testing where we actually kind of run it. We try to go ahead and see if we can make it break. And if we're able to go ahead and detect problems or errors there before it ever makes its way to production, well, we kind of kick it back to the developers and said, whoops, guess what we found? But you've still prevented it from going live. And then lastly, as you said, the infrastructure check, looking against the CIS, Center for Internet Security, um, benchmarks for our cloud provider and making sure that we meet those. So sounds like then there's plenty of tool sets if we know the right ones to choose from and to make it work, give us a great selection of things that are gonna allow us to be successful. So for DevOps and DevSecOps, it's out there, it's been running for years, there's proven cases, there's companies that have really built this into their culture and they've achieved great results. Every one of us are a beneficiary of it. As I say, just look at your cell phone, turn off auto updates for a couple of days and, and see what happens. So let's say that we kind of like this idea or somebody is like this idea and they think that DevOps and DevSecOps more precisely for us in the security world needs to go forward. What are some great ways to go ahead and get that word out and try to get 
people to adopt these, this new way of doing business? There's three ways that I see it commonly used to go viral in an organization. The first way is what is known as a DevOps dojo. And if you think of it as a martial arts dojo or gym, people go there and they start off as a white belt. They don't have any experience in, in these tools. So what do you do? You teach them how to use GitHub. You teach them how to use Jenkins. You teach them about Docker containers. And then they get some leveling, right? They maybe get their orange belt or yellow belt or green belt, and they move up through the ranks. And you can use these as ways to give an internal certification within your organization and use those to do hiring uh, promotions in, in, in your organization as you bring them up higher through the organization. Another opportunity or example is through a center of excellence. What that means is you establish what perfection looks like. You bring in a series of, of experts who can say, this is what we want. And people can come to those people to say, I need guidance. What do I need to do? And it's, it's very much more of a consulting type approach. And as we certify different software applications as having reached these levels of excellence, this allows a maturity to kind of start taking off through an organization. Mm -hmm. Finally, the third one that we see is what's more commonly known as a community of practice. And, and if you think of this, this kind of goes back to the IRC days of how do we just have a common chat where people can socialize and talk to things. And this is what we see in all of the coding communities where somebody goes to Quora or somebody goes to any of these popular websites to say, I don't know how to do this. My code's breaking. What do I need help with? Or how can I deploy this? And five people say, you know, I think this is what you should do. So you set up these groups on Slack, on Teams, so that if anybody has questions on DevOps, they can just come in and as a network, we can kind of solve each other's problems. These sorts of things really help take off because it becomes a community, it becomes a family where everybody's giving back and helping each other. And now it gets smarter when more and more people start sharing great ideas across your organization. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. So, so DevOps then really, it, it's not a fad. Uh, this is something we might have heard about, but this is really uh, kind of a best practice a way to do business. And in essence, what we've observed as security professionals is that by inserting security into the DevOps uh, pipeline, DevOps process, making what we call a DevSecOps, we're really adding value. You know, security is saying, hey, look, we can help you monetize our, our products are code faster. We can make our customers happier because they get fixes a lot quicker. The problems don't persist till we'll wait till next month or next quarter's update. Um, and, uh, and I guess lastly, this old cheaper, faster, better, pick any two. Are we still faced with that dilemma here? Definitely not. DevOps allows us to have cheaper, faster, and better. So think of it this way. If you can deploy code faster, that typically results in cost savings. If you can implement all of your security checks along the way, while allowing developers to get through long security accreditation processes faster and better, 
you're, you're really starting to see the win-win-win for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think this is not just a fad. It is the way we're going to see more and more organizations doing things. And we're even seeing recognition from NIST. They are now looking at writing DevOps 800 series frameworks and uh, guidance. So I think this is them taking notice and we're going to see some really good things coming from this space as we start to standardize going forward. Well, excellent. Well, hey, Ross, this to me was fascinating because I know you, you have done a lot of work in this area and have achieved some, some great results. And so I'm hoping that for everyone listening in here, we've added some value to your career, to your knowledge base about DevSecOps, DevOps, and it's no longer kind of a buzzword that you kind of nod your head like a bobblehead at a, at a meeting, but you can actually discuss it with a little bit more um, understanding and perhaps even become a champion for it in your organization. So again, uh, as always, Ross, thank you. I've, I've had a great time on this. Hopefully you have as well. Yes. As always, we thank you for listening to today's episode. It's been fantastic to have you here. We love sharing our thoughts and and knowledge with you and improving your CISO tradecraft. Remember, these ideas are worth sharing. So please share it with your friends. Post on LinkedIn. Do whatever you can to promote the show and we'll take more and more people into the excellent world of becoming competent CISOs. Thank you again for your time. And thank you and look forward to seeing you next time. Take care.